We'll go ahead and pray. Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light, understanding to the simple. God, I pray that you would help us this afternoon as we once again come to you in your word. God, I pray that it would indeed build us up, that it would give encouragement to those who need encouragement, that it would cause those who need to tremble to tremble. That it would help us all to be on guard and to watch, Lord. Father, I pray you'd help me to handle your word rightly, to handle it accurately. God, please, grant grace this afternoon. I pray, give us your Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us to focus. I ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Now, I know last time I was here, I was saying that uh, I'd been assigned verses 12 to 21, and I dealt with verses 12 to 16, and I was hoping that the next time I taught, I'd be able to go ahead and finish up uh, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, but in reality, we're only going to be able to cover three verses this afternoon. I think there's some good things here for us to consider, to pause, to think about. So, we'll be covering verses 17 to 19. I'm going to start reading at verse 12 uh, for context. Not that I already have obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and tell you now, even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So we'll start here with verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. So, last week, that's basically what we focused on, Paul's example. His example of pressing on by forgetting his past manner of life in Judaism, his past life in sin, forgetting that, leaving it behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, that of eternal glory, that of knowing Christ, that of obtaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is, this is what we looked at, and he's inviting these, these brethren here to join with him in following this example. He wasn't one to merely teach the right way, but he exemplified it, and he called others to join with him in following that example to which he was exhorting them 
originally. So if you want, you can go back and listen to that teaching and kind of get a summary of this first part of verse 17 here, what it is to join in following his example. But we'll start by primarily looking here in verse 17 at the second part. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So what is a walk? What does it mean to walk in this verse here? Well, brethren, this is not too hard to understand. This is language we're very familiar with as Christians. We understand it quite well. Walk here refers to a manner of life. It refers to how someone lives, how they conduct themselves on a day-to-day basis. It is to live in a certain way. We see many examples of this in the scriptures of how the scriptures uses this. We'll just look at one example here. (coughs) Speaking of Abijam, a king in Judah, it says that he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. We see his So to walk is the idea that there's a pattern, in this case it was the sins of his father, the way of his father, and he walked therein. What does it mean? He continued on in his father's sins. The sins that his father did, he also committed. He also participated in. He walked in the example and in the pattern that his father set. So that is what is a walk here. It's just a brief explanatory thing. But now we look at the command here to observe those who walk in the pattern that you have in the apostles. So not only do we need to join in following Paul's example here, but we also need to observe those who are actively walking in that example. We need to observe them. Well, observe, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to observe? Observe here carries the idea of watching intently to gain insight as to how to do something or to gain wisdom. You're studying something. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Well, what's the command there in the Proverbs? Well, you have a lazy man that doesn't have a good work ethic. He doesn't know how to work hard. He's supposed to go and study the ants to see how they operate in order to gain insight and imitate them. You see Jesus sitting down in the temple, and what does it say? He began to observe those who were putting their offerings in the offering box. And what does he do with that? Well, he observes the people, he gains insight from it, and he uses it to teach his disciples and give examples to them of what is good in the eyes of God. He's studying people to see what they're doing and to grab hold of that which is good, and then he uses it to teach. Brethren, to observe, is a, it's a command to study those who are living rightly and have ordered their ways correctly before the Lord. It is observation for the purpose of imitation. Remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct. So, observing their conduct, thinking about it, weighing it through. Observe, consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. We're observing and imitating that which is good. It is one thing to teach about how we should live, and it is another thing to see it lived out in real time. Brethren, some may be able to do calculus based on the theoretical explanations of the professor, but for the rest of us mortals, we need some examples, probably like five or six on how to do it with a step-by-step guide on how to do it, and then we're going to need like a lot of application to how it's good for the lessons to stick. Brethren, it is 
we need teaching, solid teaching is good, but we also need to see people who are living it. The nitty gritty day-to-day life of how do you live this Christianity out. We need good examples. We need people to observe. Observation is a powerful means of grace that God uses often to impart wisdom to us, to impart instruction, to impart understanding, to guide us along the way of righteousness. So now the question is, well, who or what are we to observe? Who are we to observe? Well, Paul gives us very specific direction here in this verse. He says, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Brethren, we ought to study and watch those who are great at living the doctrines they profess to believe. Those, it's not enough to merely profess. It is, Paul does not say observe those who talk beautifully about the pattern. He does not say observe those who study scrupulously the pattern. He does not say observe those who write long and lofty books about the pattern, but rather those who actually walk in light of the pattern. Brethren, in reform circles, we can have that tendency to gravitate to the intellectual. We ought to observe those who are living and, and living the example as well as teaching. Those are the great ones. It is not merely talkers that we should be looking at and hearing what they say, but those who live. So the question is, is where can we find such examples to observe, to give attention to? Well, there's two general things that we can look at. It'll stray a little bit from the text here, but we can observe two things. We can observe the past and we can observe the present. One place to look is to the past, at the lived lives of godly men and women. Brethren, history is filled with good and bad examples for us to take instruction from. Brethren, I would highly commend to you biographies that you read good, solid Christian biographies. Hudson Taylor, John G. Payton, George Mueller, Jim Elliott. Brethren, there's something about reading these men who have already lived in the past, their entire lives, and you can watch them as they go throughout their lives. And in a a span of a few short days or weeks, you can see 40, 50, 60 years of God's faithfulness. You can see 40, 50, 60 years of a godly life and its results right in front of you in the span of a few short weeks. There's no need to observe somebody in your life for decades to get instruction now by looking to the past, by reading biography. Some of you read way too much lofty, deep theological works and you would neglect biographies and you neglect histories of godly men to to your own lack to your own you're robbing yourself in a sense you're in balance you're like the guy at the gym who only does curls and his legs look like chicken legs i would commend balancing yourself out with these godly histories but not only that i would also highly commend the old testament brethren Some hardly read it. Some hardly know what's in there. They've never read the book of Jeremiah. They've never read the book of Obadiah. And they don't even know who half these prophets are because they've never read them. They spend most of their time reading the New Testament, which is good. It's better to read the New Testament than to not read at all. But brethren, when you neglect the Old Testament, you're neglecting that which God has preserved for our encouragement. 
Much of the scriptures is nothing more than an inspired history of the dealings of God with men. And this is the advantage, brethren. We can see how the wicked act in the outcome of their life and how God dealt with them so that we can see, hey, that's not a good idea. That man did that. Here was his end. I probably should not do that because I don't think God is going to treat me any differently. God is the same forever. He is the same yesterday, he is the same today, and he will be the same forever. If he treated the wicked like that, he's going to do the same thing to me. And if he treats the righteous like that, he's going to do the same thing to me if I walk in the path of the righteous. And by looking at their lives, you can see how God will treat you if you walk in those same ways. So we can observe the past, but we can also observe the present. We can, like the Lord Jesus did in the example above, sit when he sat down in the temple and began to observe people and draw instruction from that. Brethren, the earth is full of examples that we can consider and observe and meditate on and gain instruction in the way of righteousness. We can watch the righteous and see how they live over the years. We can watch people in our church who are godly. We can watch them go through their struggles. We can watch them go through their trials. And we can see how the Lord works and helps and delivers them and that will be encouragement for us we can see their zeal their love and all manner of good things and watch it displayed real time we can see how it goes for the wicked in their lives as well we can see those who choose the paths of darkness and we can watch as it falls apart and use that to take encouragement to take warning that we not go the same way we can observe people in our present day lives Observation allowed the psalmist to say that though he had been young and now was old, he had never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. What was he doing? He was observing the righteous throughout his life such that he had confidence in the Lord because he had never seen the righteous ever forsaken. He had never seen any of their children begging bread. What was he doing? He was observing the righteous and drawing from that as he watches God deal with them. He's in drawing strength and encouragement for his faith from God's consistent dealing with people over the years. Brethren, that's what Paul's wanting us to do here. He wants us to observe those who are walking right because he knows it will encourage our faith and be a big help in sticking to the paths of righteousness and enduring to the end. So, move on to the next verse, verse 18. So, why is it important beyond what I've already explained for us to observe those who walk according to the pattern that Paul laid out? Well, we have an answer in verse 18 here. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul wants us to be careful who we pay attention to and be careful to follow the pattern he has given, for there are many who do not. We want to make sure that we're not looking to the wrong people as examples. We must take care to not imitate that which is evil, only that which is good. There will be those who are within the church that we must take heed about. We must learn to identify them and avoid them or deal with them as the scriptures deems appropriate. There are those who hold to a form of godliness, yet they deny its power and are therefore enemies of the cross of Christ. So there's quite a bit to unpack in this verse here, and it'll take up the rest of our time. 
So enemies of the cross. First off, what is the cross of Christ that Paul speaks of here? What is this cross? Well, a good way to get a definition of something is to look at how this phraseology is used by the same author throughout the New Testament. Another place we see this cross of Christ references in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 or 17 rather. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So we see here, using this, this language, the cross of Christ, well, what is it? Well, it's associated with preaching the gospel. It's also something that can be made void, depending on how the message of the cross is presented. It's something that we can draw from this, The cross of Christ is something that has power. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the word of the cross is the message of the cross that has power. It's not simply a message, but it has power. The gospel is said to be the word, the message of the cross, and it is the power of God for believers. We see another example here in Galatians 6.14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is something Paul boasted in and gloried in, this cross of Christ. The cross of Christ in a sense, does the same thing to us that it did to the Lord Jesus. It crucifies us to the world, and it crucifies the world to us. The cross is something that has a very real effect upon people. It has power. It's not just simply a message, but it's something that changes. It's something that has power. So the cross of Christ represents the message and the power of the gospel. So there are enemies of the cross. Enemies. An enemy is someone who opposes. It's somebody who set themselves against. They fight against it. They are hostile towards it. They're, they have animosity towards it. They, they seek to hinder it. They seek to avoid it. That's what an enemy is. It, the Pharisees were enemies of Christ. They sought to destroy him. They sought to discredit him. They sought to slander him. They sought to fight against him. So enemies of the cross are those who oppose either the message of the gospel or the power of the gospel. And in most cases, it's both of these things. Some will be openly hostile to the message and are thus strangers to the power. And others may only embrace the message and say, oh, that gospel, it's a great thing. But they themselves are opposed to the power of it. They do not want the effects of it in their life. They do not want to be crucified to the world. And thus they set themselves against the very power. They may embrace the gospel as a good thing for many and as a, as a, a good effect upon the world. But they do not want the power of it in their lives. And they do not submit to its message. That is... These enemies, that's what they are. It's somebody who sets themselves against the cross. So what can be said about these enemies from this? What can we gain from this text? This text here, For many walk of whom I told you, and now tell you even weeping. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. So the first thing that can be said is that these enemies 
based on the context that Paul is speaking this in, these enemies are, it's referring to religious professing Christians. Religious profession, professing Christians. This charge to observe those who followed the example set before them followed immediately by warning about those who walk contrary seems to indicate that these people are going to be in close proximity to believers. It's not just simply the atheist and the pagans out there in San Francisco or, or New York City. It's people here in Texas, in Plano, in Allen, in our circles, and perhaps even in our church. They're in close proximity that we are to pay attention to, to be able to identify them and deal with them. It's very likely in the original context he's referring to the Judaizers he mentions at the beginning of the chapter. These evil workers who are the false circumcision. that These people that creep into churches and spying out the liberty of the brethren. We see not a few warnings throughout the rest of the New Testament about these enemies of the cross. There are those who have a form of godliness but not deny the power, 2 Timothy 3.5. There are those who creep into our love feasts unaware as hidden reefs, Jude 1.12. Satan's ministers disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. 2 Corinthians 11.15 False apostles were coming to the church of Ephesus. Revelation 2.2 Jezebels and her children were within the church of Thyatira calling themselves prophetesses and seducing God's people astray from the path of life. Revelation 2.18 And we are warned to not associate with any so-called brother who is immoral or an idolater or is greedy or covetous. 1 Corinthians 5.11 The New Testament is replete with warnings that there are enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ within our midst who will profess to be Christian. These could be churchmen, pastors, teachers, deacons, anyone within the church, either knowingly or ignorantly, they are enemies. These enemies are children of the devil, slaves of sin within the household of God, who would identify with the gospel in some sort of fashion. Brethren, if there was a Judas amongst the disciples that Christ himself told, it is not unreasonable to expect that there will be men amongst us in our own midst that will be the same traitors. We should expect the devil to sow wheat amongst, or sow tares amongst the wheat. There will be wolves in sheep's clothing that come to us. But brethren, thankfully we're not left without guidance. Figs are not gathered from thistles nor grapes from thorns so that we will be able to identify these people by their fruits according to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. These enemies of the cross that Paul is talking about here are professing Christians who identify with the gospel in some way and we are to be on our guard for them. Second thing about this is that there are many enemies of the cross. Sadly, this is something that is not uncommon. Paul says many enemies of the cross. This very much echoes the words of the Lord Jesus when he said that the way that leads to destruction is easy and there are many who walk thereon. It echoes his words that on the day of judgment there would be many who call him Lord, Lord, that did many miracles and many mighty works in his name and prophesied in his name that will in the end 
depart into outer darkness. Brethren, it's sad to say that going to hell is an easy and all too common thing. It is going to glory is hard and there are few who find eternal life. This is an uncomfortable truth, brethren. Most people go to hell. Most people throughout human history have missed the narrow way and have perished. Hell will be filled with many of those even who profess Christ and went to church. It will be filled with many wicked pastors, many wicked deacons, many so-called apostles and evangelists and churchmen and priests and youth ministers. It will be filled with many professing Christians. So Paul is cautioning us here. There's two things in light of this to consider. Firstly, Paul wants us to know who to not imitate and deal with them or avoid them. He's wanting us to be able to identify these enemies of the cross so as to not be led astray by them, to not end up imitating their form of godliness which denies the power of the gospel. And secondly, Paul is warning us to take care that we ourselves Walk properly, lest we be deceived. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. And brethren, I'm confident that many of us here have the same confidence that Paul had for the Corinthians of all churches, that you don't fail the test. Many in here do not fail the test, brethren. I'm I have that confidence, brethren, and if Paul had this confidence for the Corinthians of all churches, brethren, I think we should have confidence for one another. Brethren, some men, they make the standards so narrow that nobody's saved and everybody's going to hell. There's no hope. You should just grovel in despair and, and wonder why you're not a part of the elect. That's how some people present these verses, these texts. They make it so narrow that there's no hope for anybody. But brethren, if Paul had confidence for even the Corinthians, I'm, I'm, I can have confidence for the brethren here at Grace Life. So we ought to look at this thing nonetheless and think, well, does these characteristics he's going on to describe me? Brethren, let's not shrink back from looking at the state of our souls. Let's not be like the man who imagines that he has millions of dollars in the bank and just goes on a spending spree and is afraid to look in his bank account to see if he actually has the money for fear that he will find that he really doesn't have millions of dollars. Let's not be like that, brethren. It's better to find out now while there's hope so that we can do something about it instead of standing on the day of judgment hearing those words, depart from me, I never knew you. So brethren, let us not shrink back from this, this text here. These things which Paul goes on to describe concerning these enemies should be a litmus test by which we examine ourselves and others and, others and walk accordingly. So there's four things in verse 19 as we go on here. There are four main characteristics present in the enemies of the cross. All four of these things will be present in an enemy of the cross. These are not, and it's important to know, these are not just one-off things. These are characteristics. This is how they walk. This is how they live their lives on a day-to-day, consistent basis. It's not a one-off thing. It's not like, oh, I thought about, you know, movies for two hours earlier, so I must be on my way to hell. I must be a worldly-minded man. This isn't, oh, you know, I, I made a bad decision and it brought some destruction into my life. I must clearly be 
on the path of destruction. That's not it is. It's not one-off things. These are prevailing characteristics that describe the very nature of the person. So examine yourself in light of that. Don't look for one-off things, but look for patterns of life as these characteristics are described. So the first thing here that Paul mentions in verse 19 that describes these enemies of the cross is their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. Destruction, utter ruin, being undone, no hope of repair, no hope of salvation, no hope of restoration. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah that was reduced ashes. There's no hope of it ever being rebuilt. It's ashes. How can you rebuild an entire city? How can you bring those people back? Oh, they're but ashes. They're but covered with layers and layers and thousands of years of dirt. It's gone. Utter destruction. Utter ruin. You think of the city of Pompeii that was wiped out by the by that volcano, by that pyroclastic flow, and but a moment, sudden destruction came upon them. Wiped away. Utter destruction. You think of some places in Ukraine, war-torn Ukraine, places of despair, bombed out, burnt out, bullet-ridden, destruction. People who find themselves in these situations are left with nothing. Destitute, shocked, grieved, miserable, despairing. They are in pain and suffering with nothing left to them. That's what destruction is. Destruction. It's utter ruin. So notice, this is their end. It is the state of their souls. This is the stopping point. This is their final destination, destruction. There's nothing left for them after this. There, there is no further place for them to go. This is the final stop of the bus. They have to get out, and there will be no other bus that brings them out of this. They have arrived at their final state. Nothing will ever be different for these people once they reach their end. For it is the end. That is what the end is. It's no further progress. No further thing beyond it. There is no getting out of this destruction. There is no hope of ever being rebuilt or restored. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his power. These are the wandering stars. For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. There are those to whom Christ will speak the dreadful sentence, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. That is the miserable thing about hell is that it is unending. It is eternal. It never ends. As Spurgeon said, eternity is written on every link of the chain that they are bound with. Eternity, eternity, forever, forever. It will echo through their minds forever, forever, and ever, and ever. Brethren, is not this often a consolation in suffering is that we have some hope that things are going to get better? It's like you get the flu and it's miserable for a couple days, but it's like, yeah, I'll bounce back. And so that hope carries you through, but not so these enemies of the cross. They have no hope. Destruction is their end. It will never improve or get better. Imagine being sick forever. Imagine being stuck in a hopeless situation for all of eternity with no hope of change ever. The despair would drive you insane. It would drive you mad. It would drive you to weeping and wailing and howling and gnashing your teeth 
as you're there in darkness for all of eternity, knowing you will never get out. In vain for mercy, now they cry. In lakes of liquid fire, there they lie. Upon the flaming billows tossed, forever, oh, forever lost. The wreck of nature, Samuel, Samuel Davies. Their end is eternal destruction. But for the enemies of the cross, it is their end that is destruction, not necessarily their beginning or their mode of life. No matter how fair or fine their life is here, brethren, their end will be destruction. No matter how much ease and comfort they enjoy now, their end will be destruction. You ever see one of these prosperity preachers and he's like, he's older than Methuselah and it's like, how in the world is this guy still alive having lived all these years with his unjust gains? Well, it doesn't matter. His end will be destruction. Wickedness, whether hidden or open, often seems to go unchecked and unpunished. And yet, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life and boasts that he has peace, even though he walks in the stubbornness of his heart, in the end, which all will reach at some point, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all her sons away, their end will be destruction. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Though it is their end, it is not necessarily their beginning. Now, here's a question to ask from this. If we're to examine ourselves based on these things, how can I examine myself or someone else based on a destination that they have not yet reached? I mean, it's like, how do you judge somebody that they are an enemy of the cross if they have not yet gone on to destruction? Well, a hint was given in one of the previous verses I mentioned, and that is in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen, where Paul says Satan min- Satan's ministers disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end, that is destruction, will be according to their deeds. Their end will be according to their deeds. Those whose end is destruction are on a path of destruction. Their end is according to their way. What is a characteristic of an enemy of the cross? They walk a path of destruction, which brings destruction upon themselves in this life and upon those around them. So it's an either or, or it's a both. They either bring destruction on others, they bring destruction on themselves, or it's both. That's how it is. They are destroyers by nature. They walk and work destruction. They are those who boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry, Deuteronomy 29, 19. One sinner destroys much good, Ecclesiastes 9, 18. The enemy of the cross is a destroyer of good. He brings it with him. Now, as is with most things, this is true in varying degrees, some destroy more than others. There are lost people and false Christians that attempt to do much temporal good in the world, and they do. That, that, that is fine, that is good. This is a general truth, this, this destruction that is wrought by these enemies of the cross. Some will de- do more destruction and harm than others, and some will seemingly hardly do any. It's not a singular one size fits all description, but it is something that is true to one degree or another for these enemies 
These enemies of the cross, they have no good intention. Brethren, how many failed marriages and ruined families are there due to a professing Christian that does not walk according to the truth? You have the, the foolish, quarrelsome wife that just tears down her own house upon her head. And then she goes to Bible study on Wednesday. She, she doesn't, her feet don't stay at home. She's not faithful to her husband, but by golly, she goes to church. She is an enemy of the cross who denies its power while professing Christ. How many houses are ruined by a lazy husband that doesn't shepherd his children, that doesn't discipline his children, that doesn't, that doesn't shepherd his wife? He's just lazy. He's a drunk. And yet, and yet by golly, he's saved by grace. He's not saved by his works. He's saved by the finished work of Christ. It doesn't matter how he lives. Doesn't matter in his eyes what destruction he brings to his children, to his family. How many crooked, self-seeking politicians have used Christ to gain a political advantage only to turn around and enact wicked, evil statutes? Well, that describes our country. That describes our whole Congress. How many churches have been ruined by a so-called brother that was a gossip, a slanderer, a divider, a troublesome meddler? How many people have been hindered or outright prevented from entering the kingdom of God by false Christian teachers and a false gospel? These enemies of the cross, they are those who bring destruction upon themselves and upon others. How many rent payments have been missed due to the false teaching of health, wealth, and prosperity teachers? How many have made shipwreck of the faith due to bad directions and instructions from Christian heretics? How many... Brethren, how many and how much is the ruin brought by these destroyers? These enemies of the cross bring and spread destruction wherever they go. Their end will be according to their deeds. Whether they bring destruction like a tornado or whether they bring it like a slow rotting mold, their end will be according to their deeds. So how can you consider if this is you or somebody else? Well, just simply look at your life. It is likely a wreck by your own doing. Destruction and misery has come upon you by your own hands. You're not the one who builds up, you're not one who builds up and restores. You are one who tears down. Do you bring ruin to your employer? Do you bring ruin to your friendships? Do you bring ruin to your children, your spouse, your church? Is this a present reality in your life, and is it also the history of your life? Everywhere you go, it's just destruction. Whether it's a slow rot or it's sudden, you bring it with you upon yourself and upon others around you. You can't maintain friendships. You can't stay in one church because you keep getting kicked out of it. You can't hold a job because you keep getting fired. Destruction, it's in their wake. Here's another way, is can you see any time where things changed in your life that went from destroying to rebuilding by the grace of God? See, God in salvation, you go there in Ezekiel and he says, though you were formerly a ruin and a destruction and the nations will hiss at you saying, what has brought this great destruction? But God is going to rebuild them to such a degree where the nations are shocked and it says, what has happened to this destruction? What has happened to this great ruin? Who has rebuilt it? Where, where has this prosperity sprung from? Ah, it is the Lord who is a rebuilder of that which 
has been destroyed by sin? Do you see God building you up? Do you see God using you to build His people up, to build His church up? You are being built up as a holy temple unto the Lord, Paul says. That's the state of the Christian. They're builders. They're not destroyers anymore. There's new growth. They're no longer the worm that just eats away at the the good things, but rather they are those which produce good things. Are you a blessing to your spouse, or do they seek to leave you whenever they get a chance? Are you a blessing to your employer, or does he look for an excuse to fire you? Are you a blessing to your church, or are you on the way to church discipline for unrepentant sin? These things are things you can examine yourself by. These enemies of the cross are those who go from bad to worse, whereas Christians, they progress from one degree of glory to another. You can probe further at your leisure. So the second thing here said about these enemies of the cross is that their God is their appetite. Their God is their appetite. It's a curious expression because it literally is belly here. Their God is their belly. So what does it mean? Well, first off, we can ask the question, well, what is a God? What is, what is that? Well, Jesus gives a little bit of guidance here he's, when he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about wealth and money, and he says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. A God is an object that has your supreme devotion and loyalty. It is, it is a thing you obey and serve. It is something that is master over you. It is the thing that you seek to please. Everyone has a God of some sort. That is, they have an object of devotion and worship, whether they call it that or not. So what is their appetite? Well, we're given a little bit of guidance here in Ephesians 2.3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Ephesians 2.3. It is essentially their desires, particularly bodily desires and desires of the mind. That's what an appetite is. It's just whatever your body wants, whatever your mind wants, whatever it hungers for. It hungers for what it hungers for. It's different for different people. So putting it together, enemies of the cross are those who profess to know God. Yet by their deeds they deny Him. They follow not the desires of the Lord, but their own desires, whatever they may be. They indulge without self-restraint their desire, especially the corrupt desires of the flesh and mind. They ultimately end up just doing whatever they want. They are their own God. They don't care enough about what God wants to do what He wants. All they they are concerned with is about doing what they want. Pleasing the Lord is not their ambition. They do not seek the Lord. They do not seek His will. They do not seek His ways. They do not seek to know what is pleasing to Him. But they only ask, what is pleasing to me? What is pleasing to my desires? What do I want? That's their mindset. That's their attitude, these enemies of the cross. Sure, they may seek God's will out of, out of a routine type thing or when a really big event comes, but that's only because they know that there's an ought there. There's something they should do, but on the day-to-day consistent basis of their lives, they think nothing of what the Lord wants. They think nothing of His desires. Their daily mode of operation, their walk, is to serve their appetites. Their appetite is the bonding, binding law they serve. 
So how does this manifest itself? Well, one way it manifests itself is in self-indulgence. They're often gluttons, sexually immoral, covetous and greedy. That is, they have expensive taste, is what we would call it in our society. Quick to anger, they hold a grudge, seekers of revenge. It's basically any sin list in the New Testament describes these enemies of the cross. There is no restraint. They are even unable to do so. They are mastered by their desires and serve them, whether willingly or unwillingly. They do the bidding of their God. Another way this manifests itself is in avoiding crosses. They avoid crosses. Well, what does that mean? What is a cross? Well, a cross is something that God puts in your life to put self to death. A cross is something that requires you to deny yourself and die to your desires in order to do the desires and the will of God. Every cross that comes along that God may put in their path, they shrink back from it. They look for a way to not obey. They look for a way to excuse themselves from picking up the cross and following Christ. Jesus said, whoever would come after me, he must daily take up his cross and come after me. That is not what they want to do. They will will go to church and they will give money and they will do all these things. They'll do some good works here and there to salve their conscience. But when it comes to denying their God and putting their God upon the cross that Christ lays in their path, they don't want to do it. They shrink back. This is the Israelite in the wilderness. Everything God tested them in, they disobeyed. They just constantly longed for Egypt and the flesh pots of Egypt and the food of Egypt. They constantly complained. They were enemies of God, enemies of his way. They shrink back from the cross. That's, that's what this is. That's how it manifests itself. So points for self-examination here are... <clears throat> Or points for examining others. When planning things, does the will of God even come to your mind at all? Christians are those who make it their ambition to please the Lord. They actually really want to please God. They're actually genuinely concerned with what God wants. That doesn't mean that they don't have their own desires. But when their desire comes into conflict with the desire of the Lord, they deny themselves. It may be hard, it may be a struggle, but they come to a place where they say, your will be done, Lord, not mine. And they go and they pick up that cross and they bear it. Do you seek consistently ask the Lord to guide you into doing his will? When crosses come your way, how do you respond? Do you shrink back? Do you pick it up and do the will of God? Do you often satisfy sinful bodily lusts with disregard to Christ, even though you know these things to be wrong? Do you have any ability to deny yourself in these areas? Brethren, it's not, evidence of Christianity is not that you struggle against sin. Evidence of Christianity is that you have victory over it. The lost men, they can struggle with sin all they want. They have no victory. Brethren, do you have victory? Are you actually able to deny yourself? I remember before I was converted, I had no ability to stop myself with pornography. But when the Lord saved me, it's like all of a sudden a a switch flipped and I, I had a new ability that I'd never had before, an ability to resist. That's the power of the cross. It brings salvation. It puts sin to death. Do you have victory over temptation? Are you able to resist? Are you able to deny yourself to obey the Lord's word? When your flesh is screaming, don't do this, but God's word says do this. 
Do you have the ability to say, no, I'm doing this. I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm going to press on. Enemies of the cross are those who go through life living for themselves and what they want. They have little to no control over their desires and are mastered by them. The cross brings death. For the enemies of the cross of Christ, the cross that would bring death to their God, they don't want to embrace it. That's why they're enemies of it. They don't want their God to be put to death. It's an abominable thing in their eyes. They don't want it. They do not want to place their God upon this cross and crucify it. They don't want to be crucified to the world. They don't want to give up their perceived freedom to serve the Lord. If you sit here and deep down you wish that your sin, you could just do it as much as you wanted, but you don't because you, you know you're not supposed to, and, and even then you struggle to get rid of it, and you just keep falling over and over, and you just wish, oh, I wish this thing wasn't sinful. I wish I, it's very likely that this is speaking of you. Christians, they do not like sin. They do not want their sin. They want Christ. They want holiness. They want righteousness. They're like the doves that naturally want to be clean. They're not like the pigs that wallow in the mud. If you sit down, if you sit here and deep down wish you could have as much sin as you want, this is probably you. You're an enemy of the cross and a stranger to its power. The next thing here is that they glory in their shame. That is a sign of an enemy of the cross. This characteristic shows that they are ignorant of the greatness of God and His glory. It shows that their understanding is very wrong. It is very ill-informed. Instead of glorying in the God who is worthy to be gloried in and rejoicing in Him and His ways and glorying in His ways, they end up glorying in things of which they ought to be ashamed. I mean, there's obvious examples of this. The guy that boasts with how many women he's been with. It's like, the more the merrier, the the, the more proud he is, the, the guy that boasts about how much he can drink without getting drunk, the guy that boasts about how much money he makes in his stock market portfolio, the guy that boasts about how many hot dogs he can eat in a single setting. I mean, this, they, they boast of things that they would otherwise be ashamed of, they should be ashamed of. We see an example of this in the Corinthian church when they should have put out from their midst the man who had his father's wife. And what does Paul say? You have become arrogant and you boast. You boast. Your boasting is not good. This, this is glorying in their shame. They should have been ashamed of this thing. They should have put this man out of the church. But instead they, oh, look how loving we are. We keep this man in our midst and we, we just bear with him so patiently. They glory in their shame. Brother, this certainly describes our culture and our nation, especially the state of the Christian church in this 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 nation. How many churches brag about being inclusive? I mean, you, you got a Methodist church somewhere in the States just has a dude in a dress with makeup on coming up, you know, giving a testimony about how God showed him that it's okay to, for him to dress up in a dress and for this to be his identity. And the church is just parading it around like, look how inclusive we are. They're, what are they doing? They're glorying in their shame. The prosperity preacher glories in how much money he has. He glories in his big old ministry that he obtained by fraud and lies. They glory in their shame. Ultimately, the enemy of the cross is not somebody who glories in Christ. They do not have him in high regard. There's no reverence for him. 
Catholics, they glory in the Pope. The Reformed professing brethren are no different in that they glory in Charles Spurgeon. They glory in John Calvin. They glory in Luther just as much as the, the Catholic glories in Mary. And they glory not in Christ. Brethren, we are the true circumcision who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So for self-examination, what does an enemy of the cross look like in this regard? Well, who do you glory in? Do you glory in God? Do you glory in His ways? Do you glory in His Word? Do you glory in His people? Do you glory in the things that He glories in? Do you enjoy the things that He enjoys? Do you rejoice in the things that He rejoices in? That's the thing you can examine yourself based upon. Enemies of the cross, they do not. They do not have this. This is something that is unique to Christians. Are you ashamed of Christ and His words? Are you embarrassed by what He has spoken regarding the, gen- the quote-unquote gender binary? Are you ashamed of His words regarding homosexuality and its sinfulness? Are you ashamed of these things, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this sinful and adulterous generation? Are you proud of shameful things? These are things you can examine yourself by. The enemies of the cross, they glory in their shame. And the last thing here, they set their mind on earthly things. Enemies of the cross are those who are focused on the here and the now. Their minds are consumed with their desires and lust and with plans of how to fulfill them. They do not consider eternal realities as they're so occupied with the things of this life. Jesus describes this mindset when he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount not to worry about our life, not to worry about what we're going to wear, what we're going to put on. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. It'll care for itself. Your father knows what he needs. And he says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. That's, that's a mind that is set on the world. It's just, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to drive? Where am I going to live? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to go to school? Who am I going to marry? You know, all these things, it's just a worldly mindedness that chokes out heavenly realities. They take no thought for heavenly realities. They, they don't think about these things. They're just focused on my pleasures, my life, and getting as much of this world. They want more fame, more pleasure, more money, more glory, more praise, more stuff, more wealth, more of this life. That's what they want, more, 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 more of the things of this life, and that is what their mind is on, diligently seeking and planning how they can gain just a little bit more in this life. That's their main concern. They are worldlings, creatures of this world that care as much for eternal things as earthworms care for gold and diamonds. They are not like the blessed man of Psalm 1 who meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. They are not like the psalmist who treasures God's word within their heart that they may not sin against Him. They're not like the psalmist who says, but as for me, I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. They are those who are satisfied with the things of this life, whom God, whose belly is filled with God's treasures and they're satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their babes. That's who they are. They're not seeking to have God's word pressed upon their mind and their heart. They do not seek to have it guide them. They have no delight in it, truly. No delight. 
So how do we identify this? How does it manifest itself in somebody's life? What are the symptoms of this mindset? Well, Jesus said from the abundance of one heart, the mouth speaks. So what's on the inside? What's in their mind? What they're thinking? They speak those things. You can tell a lot about a person by what is important to them. And what is important to them is something they will often speak about. Worldly-minded, professing Christians will talk about the world quite easily and readily. And because they are worldly-minded, they have nothing of the heavenlies to speak of. So I'm not saying it's wrong to talk about that awesome restaurant you went to last week. I'm not saying you're going to hell if that's, that's what you're talking about. But this is somebody that all they talk about is the world. And when you're trying to engage them with the scriptures, they just go silent. They go silent. They go silent about the thing. You know, you ask them, what's the Lord doing in your life? They're silent. What's an answer to prayer that God has answered for you? They go silent. What's God teaching you? They go silent. Why? Because they have nothing. Their minds are not on these things. God's not doing anything in their life that they can tell because they're not sitting there and reflecting and filling their mind and asking, what is the Lord doing in my life? They take no notice. They do not regard the works of the Lord. They don't speak of these things because they don't think of these things. They don't speak of these things because they don't care for these things. They can talk quite easily about money, work, kids, marriage, video games, music, cultural trends, politics, foods. But you ask them about the things of God and they go silent. They have nothing to contribute because they have nothing in their minds about those very things. This will manifest itself and also in the other marks that we've already discussed. They pursue their lusts to their own destruction and the destruction of those around them. They do the desires of the mind. They do the desires of their appetite. Worldly thinking and mindset means worldly living and pursuits. Brethren, can you resonate with what the psalmist says, with what the scripture says? Are you somebody that meditates upon the law of God? Is it your delight? Is it your treasure? Is it something you seek to have within you? Because Brethren, those of you in here who know that, you know the pleasures of righteousness. You know the joys of heavenly things. To have your mind be able to get off the misery of this world and focusing on things above. Brethren, there's an illustration in Pilgrim's Progress that I like. It's a guy, he's, he's got this rake and he's just sitting here raking the mud, raking the mud, and he's trying to gather up this big pile of muddy sticks, and he's just raking, trying to get more and more and more of these muddy sticks, and he doesn't look up and see that there's an angel handing and holding over this crown of gold over his head. He doesn't see it because he's so focused on just raking this muck and getting these sticks for himself that he doesn't see this crown of gold. That's how the worldly-minded man is. He's so focused on the muck and the sticks of this world that he thinks nothing. He sees nothing. He, he doesn't reach for the heavenly crown that is right there, right above his head. That he could just, If he would just reach for it, he could grab it. But he doesn't do that because he's so focused on the things of the world. So, self-examination. What do you talk about with others? Is, is Christ, the things of God, ever in your conversations? Is it ever in your mind? Is it, is it things that you delight in? Do you delight in the ways of the Lord? That is somebody who is a friend of the cross. Somebody who delights in these things. Whereas enemies of the cross, they have no delight in them. So, we'll wrap up here. 
about these enemies of the cross. What can be said? What's the final thing that can be said about these enemies of the cross? Well, they're enemies of their own salvation. It is one thing to be an enemy of man, of a politician or a bad idolatry or a Mexican cartel or whatever opinion there is. You know, it's a bad thing to be an enemy of them, but to be an enemy of the cross is to be an enemy of the only way of salvation. It is to be an enemy of your own hope. It is to be an enemy of your own deliverance from those things which enslave you. It is to your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Uh, To be an enemy of the cross is to be an Israelite in the wilderness who refused to look at the brazen serpent because they hated it. They were enemies of it. It's foolishness. Brethren, this is the sad thing. They're given a way of escape in that cross. They're given a way of escape by embracing what the Lord Jesus Christ has done upon it. And they refuse it. They slap it away. God stretches out His hand and they slap it away. They don't want it. They don't want to get up on that cross. They don't want that cross to come and crucify them to the world. They don't want to bear the shame of the cross. They don't want to die to the things that they glory in. They don't want to die to their own pursuits thinking it's just a life of misery. They're strangers to the power, to the glory. They're strangers to the resurrection that, the cross, that is after the cross. They know not the joys of it. They choose the friendship of the world in order to be hostile to God. They are against their own salvation. That is the sad thing. That is why Paul can say, even weeping, I warn you now of these enemies of the cross. If that's any of you in here, if you see I'm an enemy of the cross, that cross stands there. You can come and you can embrace it. You can embrace what Christ has done It'll cost you. You'll die on that cross. Your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your identity, it all dies on that cross. But there's life after. God will give you new life. He'll give you a better life through Christ and what He's done. And you, too, will enjoy that power that Paul talked about earlier in the chapter about about knowing the power of His resurrection, knowing His sufferings and the fellowship thereof, you will know the joy in those trials and difficulties. Why go on in your sin? Why perish when there's a way of salvation before you? Your sins will be taken from you eventually in hell. Why would you continue, continue to just hold on to them like a little child whose dad says, give me that thing, and he says, no. And his dad's just going to end up taking it from him anyways. Why not just willingly give it up? Why not bow the knee to Christ now and serve him and avoid this destruction? Why not be a friend of the cross and a friend of God? The world is going to despise you one day anyways. It will chew you up and spit you out. And even then it's going to burn up when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It's going to be, and you yourself will be cast out. Why go to that fate? When salvation is offered freely now, today, through Christ. Come to Him. Repent and be saved. I'll pray. Lord, I do pray that You'd help us to be wary of these enemies that would come in and seek to undermine and to destroy. God, there are many false workers, evil men that seek to enslave Your people. 
Lord, if there be any in this church that are enemies of your cross, I pray that you convict them and that you would save them. Lord, I pray you'd help us to take care that we observe the good examples that have been set before us and that we ourselves would be careful to walk and follow in that example that we not be disqualified, Lord. Help us. Give us grace to keep running in a manner that pleases you, Lord. Lead our feet into the paths of peace and righteousness, Lord, please, so that we may serve you without fear and holiness all of our days. God, amen.